0: For the rest of our lives, the year 2020 will forever be remembered by these two words. Global pandemic. If you're in the United States.
1: Or in Australia or any other place in the world.
0: I'm willing to bet that 2020 did not end up how you thought it would. But as we focus our attentions on COVID-19, big things were happening while we weren't looking.
1: And today, we're going to learn about two of them.
0: This is Building Places from JLL North America. My name is James Cook.
1: And this is JLL's Perspectives podcast from JLL Australia. I'm Rebecca Kent. That's right, James. This is a crossover crossover podcast. podcast.
0: (laughs) Aren't you so glad I made you do that, Rebecca? (laughs) (laughs) Cheese (laughs) fest. Yes, yes. Okay. Today, we'll learn how the pandemic actually helped speed up several huge infrastructure projects, and it slowed some down as well.
1: And we'll also talk about a groundbreaking court case that could have global implications for how investment funds treat risks from climate change.
0: Okay. So, Rebecca, this is interesting. This is a story about climate change and investment funds. What are we talking about here? What's the story?
1: Yes. So, James, this is a really interesting one. It popped up on my feed really quickly, disappeared again, but I couldn't quite let it go because I thought this was a super interesting story that has ramifications for investment funds, property investment funds across the world. So specifically, it relates to a superannuation fund or in the rest of the world, across the rest of the world, I believe they're known as uh, pension funds. I think Australia is the only one that calls it a superannuation fund actually. Anyhow, it was taken to court by one of its members for not properly managing the risks associated with climate change. So, listen, this court case was settled out of court, so it doesn't have the sort of legal precedent that you would normally find had it have been settled in court Even still, I guarantee you lots of pension funds were watching very closely and then probably checking back at how they're managing some of their climate risks. I've teed up an interview with with Lisa Hind, uh, who's in our sustainability team at JLL, and Scott Armstrong, who oversees property at Local Government Super, which is actually doing a phenomenal job of managing their climate risks. And so we talk about sort of how to do it the right way.
0: Let's check it out. I'm looking forward to hearing this.
1: So I've got with me Lisa Hine, the Strategic Sustainability Director in JLL's Energy and Sustainability Services uh, Department. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. And Scott Armstrong, Head of Property at Local Government Super. Scott, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.
2: And hi, Lisa. (laughs) Hi, Scott.
1: (laughs) So, Lisa, today we're talking about things that may have passed us by in 2020 when our focus was, rightly, elsewhere. And among those here in Australia, a superannuation company or pension fund, as they're also known, was sued by one of its members for failing to provide him with information on how it was managing the risks of climate change, and that could mean fossil fuel companies decreasing in value or infrastructure being damaged by extreme weather. So my first reaction was what an interesting and significant precedent this sets for property funds. Uh, The superannuation industry is a cornerstone of the Australian economy. Australia is the world's fourth largest pension market, worth two point nine trillion Australian dollars. So there'll be reverberations for sure. What was your reaction?
3: Yeah, it was quite a surprise to to see that. But I guess you know, looking at the industry and the size that it is, it, it's certainly a matter of time before uh, something like this happens. And having worked in property for a number of years and seeing the clogs moving behind the scenes on sustainability, my first thought was, wow, this is going to have a massive impact, particularly around transparency and disclosure. Uh, And it was also a matter of time before the veil needed to be lifted. So the impacts of climate change have been felt around the world and investors want to know that they're contributing to a positive movement and future-proofing their assets. So Scott, property and
1: infrastructure accounts for 14% of investments across all superannuation funds in Australia. You oversee the property investments for local government super and you work pretty hard at uh, managing sustainability outcomes. So tell me, how is your fund addressing or managing climate change risks?
2: Look, our commitment to purchase 100% green power for the entire base building requirements of the property portfolio kicked off in 2007, over 13 years ago. So we've been on the the path for a while and that was innovative at the time. As far as divestments go, the broader LGS fund screens against things like tobacco, weapons and gambling. And for property, we also make sure that prospective tenants coming into the portfolio are not involved in those sectors. We've made some significant capital investments over over the years and our commitment to on-site solar generation has been a significant focus and with a really good return on investment. Today, around half the um, LGS direct property portfolio has solar panels on top and Those panels take care of around 36% of the energy use at those buildings.
1: That's amazing. Scott, just explain to us what the size of the property fund is for LGS.
2: Uh, The direct property portfolio is just over 700 uh, million, comprising eight buildings across New South Wales. And that represents around 5.5% of total funds under management. So the the funds are around about 12.5 billion at the moment.
1: Really interesting to learn there that you sort of screen tenants. And look, obviously, the return that you're getting on solar has been really successful. Are there any other positive outcomes you're seeing from some of your investments?
2: We've been able to achieve market-leading Neighbours ratings and Green Star ratings across the portfolio, and ultimately our, our carbon neutral certification, which we achieved in 2019. And LGS was the first... Property portfolio in Australia to achieve that. And we've also been focusing on clean and healthy buildings as well. More recently during COVID, we've focused on indoor air quality for our offices.
1: And Scott, not everyone may be familiar with Neighbours. Would you mind just quickly explaining what that is?
2: Neighbours is the um, National Australia Built Environment Rating System. And that's just a government tool which allows owners to compare the sustainability performance of their buildings. Really started out across the energy and water set, uh, water streams, but now now is pushing into indoor air quality and waste and recycling. And we've been using our neighbours ratings, with, so we've got we've, because we've got headroom with our neighbours' ratings. We've been able to start looking at fresh air content across our buildings, and we're we're looking to try and increase fresh air by around twenty to thirty percent in line with some increased air filtration. And you know, moving forward, one area we're looking to push into is tenant sustainability, the tenant space, so beyond base building. So the challenge there is, is data collection. So we, we need to do a bit more work there. But we're, to get people on board, we're also looking to promote some free Neighbours assessments. So coming out of COVID, Neighbours is encouraging tenants to get on board and, and, and we're going to roll out a program across our tenancies next year as an engagement tool.
1: Why do you think it's so important for local government super in terms of you know, its property fund to be so sustainability driven and what would be the risk of, of not acting, do you think?
2: Ultimately, it's important because, sure, it's, it's, it's great for the, the environment and future generations, but we believe it increases our ability to attract and retain tenants across the portfolio because there are tangible benefits there. And so we expect better long-term returns um, from our sustainable buildings compared to stock standard buildings. And one statistic I'm particularly proud of is that the LGS direct property portfolio has consistently outperformed the peer benchmark, not only in the last one to seven years, but it has delivered a return of 10.76% per annum since inception of the fund over 23 years ago. And that's an outstanding result for our members. And importantly, I think the heart of all of this, it it really comes from property management. For buildings to achieve sustainability excellence, they must be extremely well, well managed from the building supervisors up. And then that flows through to the tenant experience.
1: Lisa, Scott's outlined a few measures there that LGS is putting in place. I mean, for you, what does it mean to invest sustainably in practice in property?
3: Um, So, on the building level, we obviously have the tools, including Neighbours and the Green Star performance tools, and these work really well to be able to identify which properties are performing better than other properties. Um, But it also serves as a way to identify gaps in performance. So particularly if there's a certain level of efficiency that you want to achieve with a particular property or even as an average across the portfolio, these are quite um, a good metric to establish yourself against and be able to aspire to on the management level. So there's a lot of focus just on the governance perspective in terms of, yes, you might have very sustainable assets, but also how are you managing that moving forward? And tools like Gres, which is the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark Survey, provide that holistic view. And each year there's different questions and different updates just reflecting industry. So it's a really good way for investors Mm. to kind of understand what their fund is doing for them. But it would be remiss of me not to mention on a personal level, I I think when it comes to investing sustainably, I, I think with your superannuation, it's one of the most significant investments you can make for yourself across across your life and i think with the increase in transparency around superannuation funds you do get the opportunity to pick and choose you know if you do want to make sure that you're not investing in fossil fuels or if you do want to make sure that you're able to remove you know tobacco or remove other elements that may not align with your personal ethos for a particular investment I think any level of transparency that kind of shines a light on, on those op- options is is a good thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So members ultimately will vote with their feet, right?
3: Absolutely. And I, I liken it to when you, when you go to the shops and, and you have the option to buy the cage eggs or the free-range eggs from the one company, I think we're seeing a lot of superannuation funds providing different products to service different members. But what I'd hope to see is that they see the, the free-range egg equivalent of the super funds performing better and then move a lot more of their actions to that bucket. It would be That would be the dream. Absolutely love the free-range egg analogy. That's really good. <laughs> Thank you so much,
1: Lisa and Scott. I feel like this is quite a fast-moving uh, area of real estate, something that so many companies are getting on board with and certainly this particular case with the superannuation fund sort of being held a lot more to account on their the way they're managing climate change may very well accelerate um, that movement. But anyway, I guess we'll watch this space. Thank you very much for your time.
3: Thanks so much. Rebecca. Thank
1: you.
0: Rebecca, that was a fascinating interview. You know, for me, one of the most resonating things was this idea that, you know, investors in these funds can really vote with their values.
1: Absolutely, James. Look, there's a real obligation now for companies to be transparent. And this transparency is leading to People really having a choice about where they put their money. And look, as Lisa said, your investments in pensions or superannuation is one of the biggest and most significant investments people can make in their lives. And frankly, like people are just getting smarter.
0: Yeah. And this is not going to be the first. This is not the first and will not be the last time. That we talk about sustainability because it's so important.
1: The built environment contributes forty percent of carbon emissions into the, the global environment, so that's huge. So the impact, you know, that anyone in, in you know the, the real estate sector can potentially have by making changes, starting you know f- anywhere from from small changes to you know to just sourcing green power to to huge ones, to building, you know, timber buildings and looking at the circular economy and recycling and upcycling, all those sort of things. Yeah, it's not going away.
0: So, we talked about what might be the biggest investment in an individual's life. Let's talk about what the biggest investment might be for a nation. I'm talking about infrastructure projects. So, I had heard that some big infrastructure construction projects were taking advantage of the fact that car traffic and air traffic is so low this year because of the pandemic. And so in order to find out if that was true and what that meant, I called up Phil Ryan. So Phil is a researcher at JLL. Phil's based in New York, and he also has a passion for ambitious infrastructure projects.
4: So I am Phil Ryan. I am the Senior Manager of U.S. Office Research at JLL.
0: One of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about today, Phil, is there have been a few silver linings around this pandemic, and it feels like one has been this acceleration in infrastructure projects I had seen a piece about the L.A. Metro, the speeding up of the construction of the Purple Line into Beverly Hills. I mean, is that a true statement to say that there has been acceleration in infrastructure thanks to the pandemic?
4: Yeah, and especially for projects that were already underway. So the Purple Line is the most high profile example of this. If people aren't commuting to Beverly Hills or throughout the L.A. region you can take advantage of Wilshire Boulevard not having much traffic and doing a lot of the cut and cover tunneling, uh, station build outs and so on. And I believe that they've been able to accelerate the time frame by more than six months to almost a year. You have lower operational costs and labor costs by accelerating that time frame. So there there is a big benefit there. Similarly, when people aren't commuting, this also helps transit projects that don't necessarily need street space. Uh, in New York where I'm based, The MTA was able to do quite a bit of fast-tracked, pun intended, maintenance on the system and also was able to implement accessibility measures in more than 11 stations on a much faster time frame that they would have been able to do otherwise because they didn't have to deal with large amounts of commuters. Road projects have also been helped. I know, for instance, in Central Florida... I-4 was able to undergo a number of upgrades on a slightly faster timetable. And that's particularly important in such a fast-growing super metro area between Orlando and Tampa in particular.
0: And I had also read, is it true that LaGuardia, so LaGuardia is an airport, <laughs> the closest airport to Manhattan, most famously, what did uh, our soon-to-be president call it? Uh, I think it was a third world bus terminal. <laughs> I'm not going to say I th- it was wrong. <laughs> And I think that kind of spurred this, you know, momentum. Has the pandemic allowed them to speed up the um, construction of that that new central terminal at LaGuardia?
4: Well, someone who used LaGuardia, I think almost 10 times in the two months of this year that were not shut down. I can say it was in full swing, the reconstruction well before this. The Pandemic obviously made it a bit easier to do some of the last minute logistics stuff. It's still in process. LaGuardia, for anyone who has used it, knows that it's a very space constrained environment. So a lot of airplanes that are simply parked there mean that you can't get the full benefit of emptiness, but it helps. For anyone who had to deal with a lot of the reconstruction, they would know that there were issues with reduced road capacity and in the absence of mass transit option there. That it made it kind of really annoying to get in and out of the terminal area. So having that freed up road space meant that fewer people were inconvenienced and a lot of that congestion had been ameliorated during some of the last components of that terminal's reconstruction.
0: Has this been a good thing? Has the pandemic been a good thing for infrastructure? I mean, it sounds like projects have gotten to speed along. It's a very mixed
4: bag. In the short term, it helps. It helps with projects that you want to accelerate a timetable, you have all the funding, you have the, the labor there, you have materials. Those get an advantage. Over the long term, it's actually, I would say, a little concerning. Pretty much every state and municipality at this point is severely in the red from a financial standpoint. I live in a city that the last I checked, uh, we have a $9 billion shortfall. The MTA has been particularly vocal here that in the absence of federal funding, because they have to run effectively an essential service with 30% of its normal ridership, the MTA operates the subway, bus, and commuter rail in the New York metro area. So that covers more than 5 million people riding the subway alone. It manages to help basically run in nearly 20 million person metro area. And it's trying to run effectively a normal schedule, albeit a little modified, but with only around 30% of people using it compared to what they were doing before. So that's a lot of lost revenue. And as a result, in the absence of additional stimulus, either as as really as a stopgap measure, and also to cover some of those losses, They've had to cut back pretty significantly on the capital program that we have. And that's particularly hard in a city with more than century old infrastructure network that really needs repair and improvement. And the last thing you want in order to help recover an economy is to have to start cutting service and reducing mobility access and connectivity, because those are so important. And then also for the office market in particular, access and not just cars, but also active transportation, whether that be walking, cycling, public transportation, is a real selling point for tenants and investors alike. People wanna be somewhere where there's a lot of modes to get there. So it is a critical component of what our recovery over the next few years will look like.
0: I'm not an expert on this at all, but I certainly know a bit about after the Depression, the New Deal had a lot of these high-profile infrastructure projects, and that seemed in a lot of ways to get us out of the Great Depression. What is it about infrastructure projects that seems to have such a positive impact
4: on the economy? Mobility is basically the cornerstone of economic growth. You cannot have a functioning economy without the ability to transport goods, people, and services. That means an effective transportation network for shipping the Amazon purchases that you maybe couldn't have made you know, you know, in a retail environment at the moment. It means getting your food. It also means how you get to work. When infrastructure is better, people's mobility improves. They have more opportunity to do things. That means more potential investment, more potential spending, broader economic activity. And all of that comes with a higher and higher, what we would call BCR, a benefit cost ratio. Infrastructure tends to have a pretty high BCR, usually well over 150 in you know, economic return for every dollar that's spent on it. There are projects that go into the two or three time multiplier range. And some of them aren't even particularly high profile. They're little incremental improvements, things like improved uh, electrical grids for instance. It also is a big jobs booster as part of the movement to more renewable energy. And to do that requires quite a lot of manual work in actually building out that infrastructure in those facilities. This is a big boost as well for rural areas where a lot of this infrastructure has to be built. And those are areas that have, I think, struggled to get a lot of high-profile investment. So you can really help a lot of people easily and get something that everyone needs. There, there's nothing quite like that from an investment standpoint otherwise.
0: Awesome. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this is such a topic that's so key to just the workings of our, our entire economic lives and yet we don't talk about it enough. Of course, thanks for having me.
1: So James, really interesting interview there and actually I can identify with some of the comments uh, made there about LaGuardia Airport. I've been there and I have to say it wasn't the nicest airport experience that I've ever had. So really good to hear that next time I'm there, gosh, whenever that might be, that then it will be a completely new experience. So that's really good. It looks as though global economies are really leaning on infrastructure to pull themselves out of the sort of economic disaster that has been triggered by the global pandemic. They see it as a route to economic recovery.
0: Phil made the comment that an investment in infrastructure has more than 100% return in your country's economy. So, there's no reason not to do it, especially in a time where unemployment might be up. It it gives people jobs, infrastructure, airports and, and highways. Those are the lifeblood of our economy and how you know a, a modern economy is turbocharged and made possible.
1: Oh, and to be in a big international airport again. I cannot wait for the day.
0: With the international borders closed here in the US, I've only been doing a bit of, of car travel. So it's been, have you, have you done any travel yourself there in Australia?
1: Yeah, not so much. Uh, you know, in 2020, I have to say, I've been a bit of a good girl, hunkered down. So I have a pent up wonderlust.
0: Oh my gosh, me too. But you know what? I have been listening to a lot of podcasts, more than ever, because I got plenty of time now, and uh, including JLL Perspectives, which if people subscribe to Building Places, you should also be listening to JLL Perspectives. Every trend they cover is also relevant to commercial real estate all around the world, and you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, just search for JLL Perspectives Podcast, and uh, you can also check them out on the web at jll.com.au forward slash perspectives dash podcast.
1: Oh, I like your segue there, James, and allow me to say that Building Places, the podcast is very much worth a listen as well. Every episode tackles a big question about the future of real estate. You can search for Building Places on the iPhone podcast app, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, or stream it on the web at buildingplaces.show.
0: I feel like this is the first but not the last crossover podcast. I think there's so many more topics that we can cover together from a global perspective.
1: Absolutely. James, it's been fun. A bit of an experiment, this one, but I hope our listeners like it. It's been really nice having a chat to you.
0: And we'll keep our eyes peeled um, for more stories to cover in 2021.